Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Truth and Movies. This week, Tony Collette stars in Hereditary, the nightmarish domestic horror that some are calling the most frightening film in years. Don't you ever! Then, Rupert Everett is Oscar Wilde in The Happy Prince, but is it an ideal biopic or a drama of no importance? Oscar Wilde. Oh, Jesus Christ. And in Film Club, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Jane Campion's Oscar and Palme d'Or winning The Piano. We can't leave The Piano! Yes, it's Michael Leader here, sitting across from Hannah Woodhead, a social editor of Little White Lies. Social producer, social, social producer, editor, it's all semantics. Joaquin Phoenix correspondent, hereditary hype machine. <laughs> Johnny Knoxville, uh, yeah, chief critic, yeah. And Elena Lazic. Hey. Welcome back, Elena. Thank I you. think you're becoming the Alex Wolf correspondent for the Little White Lies podcast. I was thinking, why am I back so soon? But I know why. Yeah. It's because of Alex. You were here two, three weeks ago for yeah. my friend Dharma. Two weeks ago, my uh, friend Dharma. And now hereditary. And now hereditary, which we'll talk about in a second. But first, some correspondence from Phil in London. Uh, about our Jeff Goldblum chat the other week. My first experience of the Goldblum effect, and still my favourite Jeff Goldblum film, is Mel Smith's The Tall Guy, with the lanky American playing hapless, flawed, romantic Dexter King, starring opposite Emma Thompson and Rowan Atkinson, and written by Richard Curtis, who wrote Blackadder. It's one of the wittiest movies of the 80s, with a mixture of intelligent humour, slapstick, and the most quotable lines. I haven't seen this film. I don't think anyone around the table has seen it either. No, no. I'm really intrigued, though. I have seen the trailer because it's the first feature screenplay Richard Curtis wrote. Mm. So has that auspicious reputation behind it. Um, but sounds like quite a recommendation. Thank you, Phil. Of course, if you have any other Jeff Goldblum recommendations, uh, we may have to move <laughs> on from Jeff eventually, but please do send them in to at Little White Lies, LW Lies on Twitter or uh, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. So let's crack on with uh, what I believe is the most hyped horror movie of the year, and maybe four years, Hereditary. Now, Hereditary, a horror about a family unravelling in the aftermath of a tragedy. Tony Collette plays Annie, and Alex Wolfe is her teenage son, Peter. Here's a clip from the film of the two having some polite dinner conversation. You okay, Mum? Is there something you want to say? Why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. And say what you want to say, then. Peter. I tried. Try again. Release yourself. Stop. Just say it. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. All I do is worry, and all I get back is that face on your face. So 
disdain and resentment and always so annoyed. Nobody admits anything they've done! Um, sorry, I know it's irrational. Tony Collette and Alex Wolf there, two powerhouse performances in the horror film of the year. Hannah, you wrote the review for Little White Lies. Uh, I, did. I think it's quite a positive one. That's not spoiling. Uh, Just a little bit, yeah. Do you want to give us the introduction to Hereditary? Yeah, so this film, uh, I think it debuted at Sundance right at the beginning of the year and the reviews coming out were very, very positive. Barry Jenkins said it was the scariest film he'd seen in years Mm -hmm. and had given him sleepless nights. And A24 have, um, I don't know if they produced it or if they just picked it up Mm -hmm. for distribution, but anyway, they've kind of spun the hype machine with it and made it into a whole, you can get figurines and T-shirts and things. And it's directed by first-time director Ari Aster, who some will know from his short films. He mm-hmm. made a very disturbing one, which I can't remember what it's called, but it's about a father and a son, and they have this very, very like disturbing relationship. So I didn't realise that until after I'd seen Hereditary. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'd already seen this short film years ago, and I was like, this is all now making much more sense to me, why mm-hmm. this director has made this awful... <laughs> Awful in a good way. Right. (laughs) But yeah, and it's been in the news a lot this week because in America it has come out with a D-plus cinema score, which is where they poll the audiences after the film and find out how it's enough for context. Some of the worst films ever created have been given like B-plus scores. Mm. Um, So for it to get a D is pretty bad, but it's also a kind of indication that the critics may not have the same opinion of the film as audiences. But then also cinema scores sometimes reveal where audiences may not be expecting this sort of film or they're maybe surprised in not always a positive way by a film or, or moved in ways unexpected by a film. And this is, you know, certainly it's been touted as a horror film that is more... Traumatizing than purely yeah. scary. I think, yeah, I think that maybe the ad campaigns around this film have called it the scariest film in years. This generation mm-hmm. is The Exorcist. Lots of like big talk walking around this film, but um, I think audiences who are kind of used to like Insidious and even A Quiet Place have gone into this expecting like a jump scare horror, mm-hmm. and that is not what it is. It's <laughs> it's, it's it is Insidious, but uh-huh. not you know not not in the way that people think it's going to be. With a small eye. Yeah, very much so. Elena, you're quite a horror fan, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, you're wearing a, a t-shirt saying The Exorcist uh, yes. today. Not good for radio, but thought I'd point it out. <laughs> How? Did you uh, get on with Hereditary? I've only seen once, which is bad. I, I think I need to see it again. Mm-hmm. Because when I when it finished, I literally didn't know what to think at all. Okay. I was just... And, every, and pretty much everyone in my screening was saying the same. It was all like film critics. And we were like, I don't know what you think of this. I, I don't know <laughs> if you think it's very clever or very empty and stupid. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm not sure I've made like... I've really found out what I think of it. But then... I think I'm tempted to believe that it's not that great. Okay. I know I'm going to get a lot of stuff for that, but I, I really, I don't know, I was scared throughout, which mm-hmm. I guess is what it, the film aims to do, And because everything is made to be tense. Mm-hmm. I love horror movies, but I scare very easily, and I, I basically wash films through my fingers all the time. Like mm-hmm. I, I just accepted that by myself. And I was tense throughout, but then ultimately I don't think that it was about anything or I don't think it was really warranted to be so mm-hmm. tense and I think it was just I mean it's very good filmmaking and like he knows how to create tension with the frame and stuff but I, ultimately I don't think that it's that deep mm-hmm. or that it's that or that it's really about anything and I think it's it seems to me like this A24 problem with all the films that they're making which is like they all look amazing and they have mm-hmm. like they look like they might be about something amazing and they look like they might be very intelligent but it, you think about it and it's like 
oh, I'm not sure yeah. what it's about. I think it's quite much. hard to talk about this without giving things away or spoiling. Yeah. It's certainly one of those films that plays its cards close to the chest mm. um, for most of the runtime, but it does feel like it's playing in that similar ballpark to the, let's call them hipster horror films of the last few years with you know, The Babadook, It Follows, It Comes at Night, most of which were developed or produced or released by A24 in the States. But this is a film that... I mean, for me, I think I'm, I might be closer to, to your take, Elena, mm. rather than the, than, <laughs> than the five-star Hannah take. But it's a film that is very impressively, confidently made in yes. terms of creating that atmosphere. There are certain visual and, and oral audio motifs throughout that are used so well. And performance-wise, you have you know, Alex Wolfe, Tony Collette, to a certain extent Gabriel Byrne as well, but just giving real body and depth to this film, whether it coheres at the end into something that means something, and it feels like it's playing in this world where horror does mean something as well as being purely about scares and atmosphere, and it seems to live or die on whether it really works for you in the in, mm. in the long run, and I think it worked for you, Hannah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I watched this film for the first time back in March, maybe, mm-hmm. beginning of March time, and... I went to this very sort of small shishi screening and just like, I don't know, maybe 20 of us. And we all were kind of just like, what the hell did we just watch? <laughs> mm. So I've kind of had the benefit of watching as more and more people see this film. And yeah. I'm like, I know. And then I saw it again uh, last week, week before last. And I think I really did benefit from a second watch because you right. aren't as tense the whole time when you watch it for a second time. You can pick up on more things and see what's going on and... Make more sense of it in your head, I think. And for right. me, it is a horror film. No matter what any critic will tell you about this film, it mm-hmm. is a horror film. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, all yeah. this talk No matter of, what the director says. Yeah, he said, <laughs> God, yeah. Oh, the, the whole discourse around this film has been exhausting. The whole, like, this is the first horror film to make drama horror. And I was like, mm. no. There was, a, there was an article today saying it's a really good film because it, it's turning a family drama into a horror film. I'm like, no, some of the best horror films out there are like exactly. family dramas. Yeah. I don't Most know. horror like, films are about families. Exactly. <laughs> and... But yeah, I think um, it definitely does benefit from a rewatch. And for me, it's a really interesting sort of look at grief. Mm-hmm. And the title of the film is Hereditary, and it is just about like what you pass on to your family and what your family passes on to you. And I think Tony Collette and Alex Wolfe's like relationship in the film, their chemistry and the way they interact with each other is like crazy good. In that clip that we heard at the dinner table, it is just one of the most like tense moments in the film but also hilarious at the same time (laughs) it is just sort of the scene from American Beauty where Kevin Spacey and what's her name in Annette Benning Annette Benning arguing across the dinner table and he's like pass the peas please (laughs) it's just like totally like ridiculous and somebody I I think it was David and I were having a conversation about hereditary and one of his friends said it didn't work for him as horror but it works as comedy which oh. I can totally see. People yeah. say yeah. people say that about The Shining as well. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. if it doesn't oh, yeah. work Shining's as a horror, it works yeah. as a comedy. And I think that's you know that's maybe the same with Hereditary. Mm. So if you didn't like it as a horror, maybe think about it as a comedy. Instead. But a lot of horror is hilarious. Well, yeah. it's it's almost the, the the sort of the physical impulses are so close, aren't yeah. they? They're both about tension and release and <laughs> uh, setups and punchlines and callbacks and recurring yeah. motifs. It's all very close, very yeah. similar. I think in my past few years, I've I've watched way more horror than I did before and my reactions have gone from like being terrified and like, like can't watch the screen to just 
laughing out loud like ha every time something really horrible happens on screen which is disturbing to people around me but like it really helps with my viewing experience <laughs> like yeah I think it's a natural progression it breaks the tension yeah it's uh, the best way to, to do it one thing I, I want to shout out about the film is the soundtrack which is one of the things that creates yes. this incredible tension for two hours that never lets up it's Colin Stetson he hasn't done a film score before but he's an avant-garde saxophonist who's played with Tom Waits and I think the Arcade Fire and a bunch of other people and it's just this incredible movie score of a type I hadn't really heard before. He's a saxophonist, so he has a jazz classical background, so it's got this sort of Goretzky, microtonal, avant-garde aspect to it. But these experimental, almost electronic edges, it seems like almost sort of drone metal or minimal techno mixed with the scariest of classical music. (laughs) It's really something. And actually, unlike most horror movie scores, works quite well out of context. I was working to it uh, earlier today. Yeah, I think... um when I watched it for the first time, I went away and was kind of like, oh, it's very gasoline And it's mm. gone into my rotation now of like weird horror soundtracks that I will listen to when I'm writing. Yeah. Which I'd highly recommend <laughs> if you like feeling impending dread when you're working. But this is, this is something that people have noted on. Uh, you know, we're in a golden age of new horror soundtracks as well, like Disasterpiece yeah. for It Follows. All these new uh, sort of musical talents and visions kind of coming in and changing the expectations. It's really interesting, mm. I think. It is interesting, though, that horror being this genre that everybody likes to redefine, everybody likes to... Yeah. Uh, yeah. No one seems confident to call a film a horror film anymore. I th- and I wonder, so do sad. we know why? I think there's clearly a basis of that in the fact that it's all based on like physical reactions mm. and people hate having physical reactions they can't control, mm. which is stupid <laughs> because emotional reactions, you can't really control them either. Like, I just, there's no difference to me in those aspects. But also people are just... <sighs> Yeah, they think if a film is more worthy if it's about topics that are like important in society and stuff, which is so sad because, I mean, <laughs> that is just not true because mm. art can be just about literally anything. Yeah, it's interesting how it is the physical reaction. Yeah. So if, if, if you think about uh, genres that provoke physical reactions, first and foremost, you have comedy, you have weepies and horror, mm. and they're all genres that in various and ways... Porn. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> and they're all ones that have been stigmatised or rejected exactly. in certain ways, and you almost need to get beyond the physical to have. No, it, it means something as well. Mm. The idea of a genre film um, is something that a lot of critics malign unfairly. Like, I mean, we had it with Get Out, where a lot mm-hmm. of people were like, "Oh, because it's a genre film, then it's, it's somehow not as good." And people, mm-hmm. and when something is a genre film, like Hereditary, and I think I think Get Out is kind of a genre film. Yeah. People are very quick to be like, "Oh, but it's better than every other, you know, thing within that genre." Which is, I don't think it's helpful. And also, there's nothing wrong with liking horror movies. Horror movies are great, mm-hmm. and the snobbery around it and thinking like, "Oh, you like horror movies that you're not as intellectual as everyone else," is is very like. It's just silly. It's just, it's totally nonsensical to me. Mm-hmm. And it robs you of this wonderful canon of movies that have a profound influence on other genres as well. You know, when directors are growing up and watching kind of slasher movies and then go and make great drama films, mm. you know, there's a connection. And if you are watching these films and engaging with them, then you have the joy of like watching films and recognizing references. Like the end of an upcoming film, which I will not name. David pointed out to me after we'd seen it, he was like, I'm pretty sure that was a nod to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) The film has nothing to do with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing that you can pick up on these like very, very specific little genre references in 
kind of mainstream arty dramas. Mm -hmm. And I think one, other, one reason why people don't like genre in general is because a lot of genre cinema is, is based on a template, like the slasher film. It's like, oh, these people go to a house in the woods and then <laughs> mm -hmm. they all get killed one by one. And people think that's dumb in, in, in itself. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, the director just has to follow this template and make little variations and boof, that's it. That's a film. But like, I think that's what's so good about it. You start from this basis and there's so much you can do and you can do so many insanely intelligent things and yeah. like I just watched uh, Evil Dead for the first time and oh, Evil Dead wow. 2 and I was just like they're, they're my new favourite films like I just <laughs> it's amazing what you can do with genre mm -hmm. and it's just so sad to think that people are like depriving themselves from that yeah because personally I think that this uh, tendency to rate hereditary as being above a horror film or being on a level with the three or four horror films it's okay to like <laughs> almost um <laughs> It's almost a bad kind of comment to all the other horror films because I'm a, I'm quite a big fan of the Conjuring series and also <laughs> Mick Flanagan's uh, sort of little sideline of pumping out a great horror film every six months like Hush or um, Gerald's Game even which is a drama with great horrific film. elements. Yeah, um, I think that there's some great work being made out there that isn't given the platform as something like this. Yeah. I, th I hope that they can all coexist, and I hope that when Halloween comes out later this year or The Nun comes out later this year, because of this and A Quiet Place, people will be more switched on to looking yeah. at them. I hope so, and I hope we can get away from this idea that a film like Hereditary has to be more than a horror film, <clears throat> yeah. and it can just be a good horror film. Because mm -hmm. horror films have always been more than what people think horror films are. Like, it's so weird. Yeah, and it's so funny to me that people like compare Hereditary to The Exorcist as if The Exorcist was like amazing because it's such a silly film. Like, the Exorcist <laughs> is so really? silly, and I love it so much, but it's so funny. Mm -hmm. I think Hereditary, yeah, Hereditary as well. The thing that's amused me is seeing all these kind of very serious reactions to yeah. it. Like, it like, is the Exorcist. Quite, like, yeah, I mean, Hereditary is a, a very silly movie at yeah. points, and like, yeah. there's this great moment where uh, Tony Clark and Gabriel Byrne are having this conversation, and she paints miniatures for mm -hmm. her career. And after this horrible thing happens in the film, she's making a miniature. He comes in and says, "Jesus Christ, Daddy." <laughs> in his like <laughs> Irish accent and she yeah. replies to him with it's just an accurate representation of what's going on and it's like the funniest thing to me mm -hmm. and yeah I think I'm a film critic and I'm probably guilty of this but the over into the over intellectualization it's not going to happen <laughs> the, the, the sort of the the the, the attempt to over explain a film mm -hmm. and over estimate a film really mm -hmm. is you know, sometimes it, it just exhausts me and mm. it can make you like a film less because you've just had it beaten out of you by yeah. the discourse surrounding you. Yeah, you just like free yourself, like horror films, like whatever <laughs> films you want to like. You don't have to do that to yourself. You're just wasting so much energy you could spend watching more horror films. Exactly. So let's exercise <laughs> our demons of hereditary style. Exactly. And uh, put... Whoa. <laughs> okay, tr trigger warning. Uh, <laughs> Let's, let's throw some numbers at it. Hannah, do you want to go first? Coming out of Sundance, I'd heard everything. Very excited to see it. So it's a four uh, enjoyment, just because it wasn't really like anything I'd seen before. It's five. And for me, yeah, it's a five. It's held up. I would hesitate to say it's going to be like a five in years to come. But mm -hmm. certainly, you know, seeing it three months ago, it's still very much top of my list at the moment. Great. Elena? I would say four, four and... Three and a half, just because I'm I'm not sure, but I have my doubts. Yeah, <laughs> I think the the hype really worked a number on me. I I avoided as much as possible, but mm. I couldn't avoid it. So my expectations were quite high for mm. for that, and I enjoyed it four and then three. I it didn't add up in the end for me, but I do. <laughs> I will go back and rewatch it. Maybe the second run through is what I need 
Thank you for that, Hannah. <laughs> and that tip. And I'm that just, was just trying oh. to get, get more box office numbers for it on. I'm just like, oh, you're on the payroll. To, yeah. right. okay. <laughs> I didn't realize. We often get accused of this, you know, of critics being in the pockets of studios. If um, any studios want to put me in their pocket, I would be happy with that. You okay. know, I've got bills to pay. You heard this here first. <laughs> um, and that was Hereditary. Up next, we're going to talk about The Happy Prince, Rupert Everett as writer, director and star in the, an Oscar Wilde biopic. Your appreciation has been most intelligent. Which persuades me that you think almost as highly of the play as I do myself. What is the name of this friend of yours? Oscar. <laughs> Oscar Wilde. Oh, Jesus Christ. I hear you're writing a new play. Superb. Avotos. Constance, my dear, beautiful wife. You and my sons are the things that tie me to life. Oscar, let's run away. Someone no one could find us. You don't know what you're saying. Not wearing your silk stockings today, Oscar. You go too far, sir. No, you go too far, madam. I am a ruined man. So that's Rupert Everett in The Happy Prince. Hannah, you and I saw this in Berlin a few months ago, so yes. a little rusty. Elena, you saw this only a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. So how does this pan out? This isn't a straightforward biopic of uh, Oscar Wilde, is it? No, it's uh, it's quite daring in many ways, mm-hmm. like uh, visually and uh, structurally. Mm-hmm. It's all presented in sort of flashbacks, but not conventional flashbacks. It kind of jumps around in time a lot. But you, I, don't, I was really, really impressed by actually by the audacity and the confidence of and the, and just the passion mm-hmm. that's clearly behind this film. I, I believe Robert Everett was trying to make this movie for years. Years, yeah. And and that really comes through, but in a in a great way, I think. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't, I don't know if I was on board with everything that he tried, but he tried so many things that that are so amazing, and so many of them are really successful. So I was kind of blown away by it. I was mm-hmm. I was really not expecting something so daring and like original. I thought it was going to be more conventional. It's not conventional at all, but it really does feel quite deeply felt and considered. Yeah. Uh, Rupert Everett, of course, you know, one of the great actors of his generation uh, over the years, has appeared in the film version of Importance of Being Earnest, um, Ideal Husband. He had a one-man play that he's performed over the years as Oscar Wilde. And now this is the product of this. And it's kind of hard with films like this, these biopics where a great star is assuming a great role and they're also making their directorial debut to view it as almost a, a passion project or an indulgent mm. thing, an Oscar play, whatever. Yeah. But it certainly comes across as he has a thesis. So he has something to work out in this movie. This period after Oscar Wilde is released from Reading Jail and actually has an opportunity to start a new life, to start afresh, to maybe even regain his reputation in exile in France. But why didn't he? Is mm. the big question that hangs over the film. Um, Hannah, rousing the, the the thoughts from Berlin back in February, what did you think when you saw it then? I remember not liking it very much back in Berlin. I like Rupert Everett very much. I think he's a very sincere and funny and open man, which, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he came out as gay quite a long time ago when it wasn't really okay mm-hmm. as an actor to come out as gay. And he, he really got maligned by the industry. And this does feel like his kind of, like, uh, cathartic moment of making this film about his hero and writing it and directing it and starring in it. And it is, yeah, sort of like kind of his his big thing that he's been trying to do for how many, nine years or yeah. so. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman at one point was going to star right. in it. And obviously after he passed away, I think Rupert Everett kind of, you know, took it upon himself. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't know. 
if I needed another Oscar Wilde biopic, I feel like after we, um, Stephen Fry's from the nineties. Yeah, we had Stephen Fry's from the nineties, which again I've not seen it for quite a while. I remember liking it when I watched it. Um, it has something of the kind of uh, Venus Peter Tool mm. ilk about it, showing this kind of great artist in his dying days, mm. and it is ambitious. I agree with the Elena there. It's there's a lot of things that he's trying to do which are interesting, and I think he's really not afraid to show the sort of fealty of Oscar Wilde at his kind of like nadir when he's old and bloated and just mm. a randy old man basically who's lusting after all these very young men yeah. and being quite lewd and his poor bloody wife just having to like put up with him well from afar really yeah. it's emily watson there are a few of these cameos from clearly rupert everett's kind of mates coming in for a scene or two tom wilkinson colin firth emily watson but really it's the rupert it's, everett show really it it's is, amazing yeah. to think that anyone else could have played this role is the, the way the film looks and feels and plays out mm. um under a quite a heavy layer or two of makeup there. I think he looked a lot like Mr. Creosote from Monty Python, uh, this Falstaffian large figure. It's not a polite performance at all. It's quite no. a, There's lots of vomit and spit and sexuality all on display. I think there's an actual orgy at one point. There's certainly one bit where he's playing strip <laughs> musical chairs with Italian yes. youth. Oh, it's so great. Um, <laughs> which is great, but also gets to the heart of what I think is quite almost corner-cutting about this film. That scene is cross-cut with, because it's a Christmas scene, and it's cross-cut with his sad kids abandoned yeah. in, in, back in the UK singing carols mournfully. <laughs> and it's like, this is, you know, there's a lot of sentimental shortcuts yeah. here yeah. Yeah. Um, that I think undermine what is quite an, an opportunity to show really the great depth of feeling that, that goes into this, this character. Mm. And I think it's such... Um, this, he tries really to put so much in one film, and it's very... Mm dense in a way like you watch it and you have so much things to work with like this the visual style in that film is just so intense and, and amazing and beautiful and and sometimes i would just find myself just watching that and being like oh my god how did you do this why is it shot like this what did we decide and then i would you know it would be hard to follow what they're talking about i yeah. would just it was because he's so he really like polished every single aspect of the that went into the film so it's like very very intense to watch that like you you get a lot from it but it's, it also makes it a bit hard to connect sometimes because there's just so much going on so it's hard to connect emotionally with the character and the story but i, I still find myself moved eventually right so yeah were you moved hannah no not really i think all the best lines come from oscar Wilde's work mm -hmm. uh, which he's quite keen to shoehorn in every opportunity yeah. um yeah it was just a bit overwrought for me and I really appreciate Rupert Everett's passion and yeah. he obviously holds Oscar in very high esteem but isn't afraid to be kind of realistic about the sort of person Oscar Wilde was. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just I, I was struggling to kind of work out what it was saying about mm -hmm. either Oscar Wilde or about creativity or about homosexuality because there's yeah. a lot, like it talks about Bosey. Bosey turns up played pretty badly by uh, Colin. Uh, oh, yeah. It's not on there. Colin Murray? That's not right. He's a DJ. Um, <laughs> young Colin from Merlin. Is oh, him, how yes. I will refer to him. The guy from in Merlin, this yeah. very, very bad wig. And uh, yeah, it, it's very hard for me to actively dislike this film because I mm. like Rupert Everett so much. And it was nice to see him and uh, Colin back on screen together after Centrinians. Uh -huh. um, but uh, yeah, it just didn't quite. It's very forgettable for me. It's not something that I would think. You know, a couple of years down the line, oh, I really must rewatch that film. Mm -hmm. It's like primetime BBC drama, really. But with a little bit more spittle and 
bare backsides than you'd expect yeah, to see. Maybe ITV drama. ITV, later on, 9pm. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, shall we round this up? Anything else to say or should we go for scores? Yeah, Ellen, do you want to go for scores? Um, I would say um, free because I didn't know anything about it. I was just like, oh, mm-hmm. this looks interesting. Then enjoyment, maybe four. And in retrospect, I would probably still say like three, 3.5 because I don't think it really succeeded at doing uh, what it was I think trying to do and also I don't know what it was really trying to say <laughs> I don't really know what it was about I had a good time watching it I was marvelling at how beautiful it was but that's it really Hannah? Um, I think it's maybe a 3-3-2 three, three, for me mm-hmm. I say it, it's just not yeah I would kind of expect more yeah. from that calibre I'd say 3s across the board um, mm. maybe low 3s uh, this is a film that's quite hard to dislike because it's clearly such a passion project and one that's got a lot of ideas in it and compared to biopics and biographical dramas we've spoken about on this podcast recently I think I learned a few things but maybe not enough so 3s across the board for The Happy Prince up next we're talking about Film Club which is this week is uh, a 25th anniversary look back at Jane Campion's The Piano uh, starring Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin. And we have a clip after this. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, no, it can't come now. It must. She wants it to come. Yes, and so do I, but there are too few of us here to carry it now. Too heavy. What do you mean you don't want your clothing or your kitchenware to come, is that what you mean? We can't leave the piano! Look, let's not discuss this any further. I'm very pleased that you arrived safely. Mother wants to know if they could come back directly for it. Could I apologise for the delay, which I regret was... After they've taken the other things. Can't do, Pato. Completely here, till <laughs> Might I suggest that you prepare yourself for a difficult journey? The bush will take clothing and the mud is very deep in places. So that is the piano. Uh, Holly Hunter is a mute woman sent to New Zealand along with her young daughter, Anna Paquin, and her prized piano from an arranged marriage. Directed by Jane Campion, Palm Door winner, uh, multiple Oscar winner as well, Best Actress, Supporting Actress, and Original Screenplay. 
Uh, we have a couple of listener comments. Uh, Elena, do you want to go first? Uh, yes. Um, on Twitter, at Tommy James said, whilst there are some great performances, if you're ever in need for a nap, this film is a snooze fest. Gorgeously filmed, though. Um, well, Which I can't say I agree. Uh, thank you, Tommy. Although we did talk about with Zama recently that sometimes snoozing in a film can be quite good. It opens up your imagination. <laughs> Hannah, uh, do we have a second one? Yeah, we got one from at Ollie Potts Arts. Uh, Love this film. Left a big impression on a 13-year-old me. I don't know if I would have had much of a feeling about this film at 13 but good for Ollie yeah I think we all watched this for the first time for this film club this yep. is the great thing about film club there are certain films that I've kept in my back pocket for rainy days and mm-hmm. the piano being one of them so looking at this in 2018 this great reputation it has as the only female directed film to win the Palme d'Or Oscar winner great zeitgeist movie of 1992-93 how do we look at it now well, I mean, it's baffling to me to start with that this is the only film directed by a woman that's ever won the Palme d'Or. Mm-hmm. So that was, I mean, put that to one yeah. side. Um, yeah, The Piano is always one of those films that I've never been in the mood to watch. I would never think, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to watch The Piano. But my mum actually uh, said to her the other night, I'm going to watch The Piano for work. And she said, oh, I love that film. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, oh, yes, it's a very good film. And she's not a film person at all. So it did, obviously, in a certain generation, it kind of inspired this big emotional reaction. And I have to say, I very much uh, enjoyed it. I think it's a really beautifully shot film. Mm-hmm. Some really, really amazing performances from Holly Hunter and uh, Harvey Keitel. And yeah. despite her really dodgy Scottish accent, uh, Anna Paquin, mm-hmm. her Oscar was very much deserved for this film. And the music in it, I think, was we were discussing before uh, recording the podcast, the music has become quite entrenched in British culture, I think, because yeah. it was featured in a bank advert during the like early noughties I guess and so that did slightly sour the film because all the way through I was just thinking about you know like what was it Scottish Widows well that's, it's that the piano theme by Michael Nyman that actually Holly Hunter plays herself on the yes. piano in the film which is pretty incredible has become so iconic in itself outside of the film and used in so many different contexts that it is impossible to to avoid. But so much of uh, the sort of visual language of the film has become iconic as well. The great opening sequence of of just Holly Hunter and Paquin on a beach with the piano almost swallowed by the landscape seems to be something that we see used a lot. I'm getting Scottish Widows being the one that I <laughs> mentioned earlier. It's one of those films that it's so fascinating to finally watch it. I feel like there are a few in the early 90s that I remember growing up were big movies. Everyone talked about The Crying Game being another one, mm. which I still haven't seen because there are certain aspects of it that have also been spoilt or ruined or talked <laughs> about too much out of context. And it's whether we can then watch these films on their own you know, on their own steam, in a way. Um, was this something growing up in France, Elena, that was a big movie? Um, I, I don't know if it was, because my parents are not all, like, into film, and they weren't even born in France, so like, mm-hmm. we're just kind of living there. And because I, I'm not from the UK, I don't know about these ads that you're talking about. Okay. So for me, it was just, I, it was amazing, actually, to experience this soundtrack mm-hmm. for the first time, because it's such a weird soundtrack. I mean, it's so, like almost like Philip Glass type thing that she be playing that setting and it's just very like strange the first mm-hmm. time you hear it and why would she play that at this time like it, <laughs> it doesn't really make sense but it's so beautiful it kind of I think it really adds to the also like just as gorgeous and intense cinematography and performances like everything is really intense in that film like just in it's such everything is like it's very hard to describe because it's so powerful in every aspect like the 
every single frame in that film is just awe inspiring. It's just, mm -hmm. I, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a film like this. It's so nice when it happens, and it's not all the time. And yeah, I was just like, even though it's narrated by a woman, no one could have denied that this film is amazing. <laughs> so I'm just, yeah, it was, it was incredible to watch. I watched it on my TV, and I was just like mm -hmm. hooked to the screen. It was amazing. Well, that's something that. Jane Campion as a filmmaker, she is such an atmospheric, sensual, emotional filmmaker. Often her films don't necessarily hang together plot-wise or story-wise, <laughs> but this is certainly her most popular and successful film, and it's one that you just go with it. Mm. And there are these certain moments that just resonated with me. I love that one of the most sensual and sexy moments in the film is when a character is touching a hole in someone's tights, which oh is just God, framed in such a way <laughs> that you you don't, after something like The Happy Prince, which has it all out there, it's something so restrained and small that can really work. But it was also so like shocking. I was like, oh my God, mm. is this a metaphor <laughs> for, for, for what he's doing? But it's such a... a, a symbolically rich film yes. isn't it this idea that uh, Holly Hunter's character is married off and sent to the other side of the world with just her piano she's mute so it's her only avenue of expression and the piano becomes this thing that's traded between these two men Sam Neill and Harvey Keitel almost in the way that her voice is mm. being or her, her uh, sense of self agency. her agency is being uh, exchanged <laughs> between these two it's men it's all a metaphor is that something that do you think it's still given renewed relevance today? yeah I think it um I can totally see why it has held up for as long as it has. And mm -hmm. the BFI are actually doing um, some screenings of it in the upcoming weeks. So I think it's um, actually a, a, a national re-release that oh, Studio well, Carol put in together. Yeah, do not just have to be in London to uh, <laughs> go and enjoy the piano on the big screen. But yeah, I mean, it's a horrendously sad film, really, mm -hmm. when you stop and think about it. Despite there being this great romance at the centre of it. There isn't, I don't know how romantic it really is, yeah. the relationship between uh, Adam and Baines. Yeah. But yeah, this, this poor woman who is just traded off like cattle mm -hmm. or, or like the piano yeah. and sold to um, this very sort of uh, serious, brusque and emotionally distant man who longs to be a good husband but has no idea how to do it and mm -hmm. in the end completely botches it and it... Yeah, I mean, it's a total credit to Holly Hunter that she manages to give this absolutely like spellbinding performance mm -hmm. just through her face mm -hmm. and her body. And the sort of climactic moment in this film when um, Sam Neill's character punishes her for her affair with Harvey Keitel, the way the camera just lingers on her and like she kind of staggers away from Sam Neill, and I was just, it just goes on for so long and you're like, Oh my god, this is just like breaking my heart watching yeah. it. And her reaction in that sequence just tells you everything you need to know about the character. Like you watch it and you're like, oh my god, mm -hmm. I know all those things that I didn't know about her before. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so, this is honestly one of the best performances I've ever seen. And what's incredible about it for me is that she is such an, um, an actress defined so much by her distinctive voice and so emotionally open in her full body and vocal performances in broadcast news, uh, recently The Big Sick and of course The Incredibles, one of the greatest <laughs> uh, you know, voice performances in an animated film and this one she has nothing. It's so interesting to read in the trivia for this that Jane Campion originally wanted Sigourney Weaver to play mm. the role and then yeah. had Isabelle Huppert come in as well. That makes sense. And Huppert said that she was angry with herself for not fighting harder for the role yeah. which is yeah I, 
I really can't imagine anyone but Holly Hunter in this role now. But I, I did think of Isabel Huppert watching it. I was yeah. like, oh, this is so much like... Actually, this is so much like her performance in The Piano Teacher, yeah. which is <laughs> funny. So we have The Piano Teacher, The Piano, The Pianist. Uh, we can keep going down. <laughs> piano the themed films. Yeah, yeah, that's a good... Uh, the thing, the other thing that I noticed about this film, and I haven't, I'm not that familiar with Jane Campion's work apart from I've seen Bright Star and I've seen uh, Top of the Lake, but the way she shoots New Zealand, which mm. is obviously where she's from, is very different from how I normally see New Zealand shot. I see it sort of shot with the big sunrises and you know it looking glorious and sort of think of it as well as Hobbiton from yes. Lord <laughs> of the Rings. But she shoots it like it is just this sort of grim, miserable. Wuthering Heights esque plane where mm-hmm. it's raining all the time and it's just a bit horrible. And poor um, Arda and uh, Flora have come from Scotland yeah. and it just looks like they've kind of gone from one bleak <laughs> landscape to another. And I think I think that's very interesting that maybe because she's from New Zealand, she's not as sort of romantic about the landscape mm-hmm. and is more kind of like matter of fact about mm-hmm. it. But I think that kind of goes through the entire film and the stories. Like it's romantic, but it's also not romantic, mm. and it's. A subtle like love story but also just not subtle it's very <laughs> very very obvious in some ways and I think that kind of makes some people like be like oh it's so overdetermined and weird and like but I'm like no I'm pretty sure that's on purpose and that's yeah. what makes it so amazing and fun and like because it's all these people who think they're so civilized but actually not really I mean mm-hmm. they just want basic things like most people and they become really violent very easily and I think that's kind of the brilliance of it is that it's so well made and it's like an Oscar winner, winning film but it's also like very like simple in a way and like mm-hmm. very brutal and that's what makes it very fresh even now I think mm-hmm. I know I mentioned Zama earlier but I think this would be play really yeah. well alongside that of these sort of colonial films of gentlemen mm. uh, trying their best in landscapes <laughs> that don't want them there yeah. or contexts that don't want them there it's interesting as well the the Maoris in this film who are kind of just like a background character but there's one moment that really got me like when uh, Flora goes to uh, Baines to tell him to stop seeing her mother basically and she's screaming and she's saying he'll kill her he'll kill her and Harvey Keitel's shaking her and saying what did she say what did she say and this Maori woman comes over and goes she's just a child and it reminded me of Zama and the fact that the Maoris in this film and the um, indigenous people in Zama Mm -hmm. are kind of like the people that understand what is going on and what's going on in the situation yeah there's one aspect of this for me, and this might be overstepping a mark, <laughs> that, that didn't sit well with me is uh, as part of this great sexy uh, um, awakening romance between Harvey Keitel's character and um, and Holly Hunter's character, there are these moments where she's playing piano. He owns the piano now, so he says, for every black key, I get to do whatever I want with you. And there's a moment where she's playing piano and minding her own business, and he goes off into another room and comes in starkers. And it made me think of... Well, I guess maybe it's Harvey, it's nudity, yeah. it's power dynamics. Uh, that didn't, <laughs> and that almost reminds the film for me that that is the sexy romance. Uh, yeah, now, no, it, we, we look at that now as an exploitation of power dynamics. But I think it is still in the film mm. an exploitation. I don't think it's supposed to be watched in the film and be like, okay, this is it's fine. It's complicated, And yeah. I think it's really like, she's in a situation and she doesn't know what what she's doing I mean she wants some things she can't have them she's trying the best she can and this is kind of the way it happens that she has no control and I think that's what the very 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 ending of the film Mm. when she says I think about this I'm not going to spoil it but when she says I think about this often lying in bed at night uh, that's kind of what makes it not that romantic and kind of puts a different light on everything Mm. that happened and why she's doing the things she does 
I think it's interesting that originally uh, Jane Campion wanted to end the film. Mm-hmm. That so I mean, we're not usually concerned about spoiling Film Club for people. It's but, 25 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. so right at the end of the film, um, when they're Arda and Flora and Baines are on this boat with the piano, and um, Arda through the proxy of her daughter asked for the piano to be pushed overboard and then she goes overboard with it and that is where Jane Campion wanted to end the, mo- the film originally Yeah. and I haven't actually read why she decided not to end it there and she kind of adds on this like this little bit afterwards as an epilogue with um, the voiceover mm-hmm. um, but yeah that totally changes the meaning of the film for me yeah. if you think about it ending like right at that moment Yeah. and I don't know if it makes it sadder that you have this kind of epilogue where she's gone on to live this life and you hear this kind of like withering like you know yeah she just seems resigned to her fate or not but yeah Mm -hmm. it's It's a kind of fascinating ending yeah really and that's the piano 25th anniversary (laughs) this year it's out on national release something I would recommend Hannah and Elena I don't know if you've seen more uh, Jane Campion movies or well actually this wouldn't really work for you anyway but (laughs) the Tyneside Cinema up in Newcastle are doing a full retrospective of Jane Campion's work including 35mm screenings of In the Cut which is my personal favourite of hers this very sexy noirish thriller with Mark Ruffalo my my bae great moustache with an amazing (laughs) moustache yeah Yeah. I mean that's something to look up and and one final bit of Jane Campion trivia which I love Um, in the piano and certainly in Bright Star she at the end of her film credits the animals that have starred in the film mm. not a lot of directors do that oh. and now in Bright Star her cat is actually the cat that's in the film Jane Campion's wow. own cat Jane Campion's own cat has a starring role as Fanny Braun's uh, cat that sounds like a bit of feature in the making best (laughs) filmmaker cat Um, and listeners if you have any Jane Campion recommendations or thoughts on the piano you can let us know at LWLies truth and movies at tcolondon.com or on the comments page on lwlies.com slash podcast and that uh, just about wraps up for this week next week Ocean's 8 is the lead film next week should we go through all 8 can you help me out here we have Kate, Kate Blanchett, we Sandra, have Sandra Bullock, Aquafina, Rihanna, Kaling. Mindy Kaling. How many is that? That's five. S- Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think Anne Hathaway counts in the eight. She count. Oh no, who are we missing? There's one that we're, we're missing. Uh, answers on a postcard or it's, coming when now. our brain I works. Bad, I saw this film two nights out. ago and I'm already oh. forgetting it. <laughs> it doesn't pay um, well. Uh, James Corden doesn't count in the eight. Second <laughs> oh film God. next week is Boom For Real, the Basquiat documentary. And for Film Club, we're looking back at Elizabeth, late 90s period drama starring Kate Blanchett in her breakthrough role that uh, bagged her an Oscar nomination. Your so-called piratas, your pirates, attack our merchant ships daily and you... You think we don't know where the orders come from? The whole world knows these pirates sail up the Thames all the way to your royal bed. You will leave my presence, sir. Go back to your rat hole. Tell Philip I fear neither him nor his priests nor his armies. Tell him if he wants to shake his little fist at us, we're ready to give him such a bite he'll wish he'd kept his hands in his pockets. You see a leaf fall and you think you know which way the wind blows. Well, there is a wind coming, madam, that will sweep away your pride. I too can command the wind, sir! I have a hurricane in me that will strip Spain bare if you dare to try me! And also has a great turn from Eric Cantona 
I wonder if that's anything <laughs> wow. to do with the World Cup or if it's just uh, convenience. <laughs> I did not know that. Wow. Not even mm-hmm. learned something today. Indeed. So let us know what you think about Elizabeth. And it just leaves me to say thank you to Elena. Thank you. And thank you, Hannah, as well. Thank you. As always, this has been a Seven Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.